And Father, help us hear your word that we not, may not only hear it, but do it, lest we deceive ourselves. Thank you for this little letter, perhaps the first written in your New Testament to us. Help us to be corrected by it, encouraged, strengthened, whatever we need, Lord. Thank you that your word can do it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Bad habits die hard, have you noticed? Ever tried to break a bad habit? Some of them are so woven into who we are as individuals, and what's worse, some of them are so woven into our culture that at a certain point, they don't seem actually bad to us anymore. They just seem uh, as something we sometimes tell our children, those of us who are parents, we just tell them that's the way life is or that's the way the world works. In James chapter 2, he's going to address Christians and refer and correct them and warn them about what we're doing this morning. He's referring, I believe, to their worship gathering. He may even be referring more specifically to a dispute within the church where two Christians have come at odds and they're contrary to each other, and someone in the church, perhaps the entire congregation or a group of leaders has been called to settle the matter, to hear each side, and to determine who's right. And remember, James is writing to a group of people who have been scattered by persecution. Jewish believers have been scattered across the Roman Empire. Times are hard for everyone receiving this letter. He writes them this letter to encourage them, and the whole letter has to be viewed through the lens that James sets in the very first few verses telling them to count it all joy when they face trials of different kinds. The letter is written to Christians who are suffering, who were in trouble, who are beginning to pay a price for their faith. And that's the other thing about bad habits. Not only do they die hard, but I don't know if you've also noticed this, bad habits also tend to resurface when you're under pressure, when you're in trouble. There are some things that I can count on having to fight against extra or fall back into, and in the pit of that, I think to myself, I thought I was better than this. I thought I was past this. I thought I had grown out of this. What has happened is new pressure, new trouble has come into my life, and rather than relying on Christ in that moment, I rely on something else, some other source of comfort, some other source of strength, some other source of peace. The people who are reading the letter of James, which as I believe I mentioned in my prayer, may have been the very first letter ever written in the New Testament, probably in the 40s. In other words, within just a few short years of the resurrection of Jesus, he told them how to conduct themselves and how truly to honor their identity as Christians. This message is to Christians, but it has something especially important for those of you who may not yet be calling yourselves Christians. Maybe you're here checking it out, and you want to know what the Bible has to offer. You've heard the name of Jesus and the word Christianity all your life, and you're here thinking about it but not quite sure what to make of it. The last part of James' admonition here is for all of us, but it will speak especially to you because James is going to draw a sharp distinction between religion and trying harder and trusting Jesus for your salvation. Let's read, please, James chapter 2, verse 1. 
my brothers. And remember, this is an old Greek way of including everybody. The American equivalent would be, hey, guys. We're not excluding women. Texas and the South have it better. We just say y'all. Okay? But he means brothers and sisters. He's referring to Christians. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In other words, there is a way to continue to hold faith in Jesus, who is the Lord of glory, who really is God in the flesh who is everything God is because He is God Himself, there is a way to hold faith in Jesus and still show partiality. And James explains exactly what he means. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, your church service, And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What's James' big idea in this passage? Very simple. Don't play favorites with people who have money. And this is one of those passages where everybody says, me included, well, of course not. I mean, I heard you groaning while I was reading it. People in trouble, they're in worship, they've been persecuted, but a little band has huddled together, they've constituted a Christian church. Many of them have lost families and friendships. Many of them have lost income. They have no visible means of support now. And on that particular Sunday morning, somebody comes in flashing all of the first century signs of wealth. What might a congregation be drawn to do in that exact moment? Well, good morning. How are you? Right this way, sir. We've prayed for you this week. Right this way. Here, sit. Sit here. You can get out. Get, 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 go stand in the back. You… Does this happen? Let me just ask you, have you ever felt the difference? Have you ever been treated differently because of your appearance? Have you ever felt that a sales clerk maybe wasn't giving you much time because according to them you couldn't afford it anyway? (laughs) This is one of those bad habits. This is beyond a bad habit. This is a sinful part of human nature that sizes a room up immediately decides who can help and pays attention to them. That's what James is forbidding. Christians do not hold the faith in Jesus, who is the Lord of glory. As Christians, we don't play favorites with people who have money anywhere, especially and including in church. And he's going to get deep and specific. Listen, my beloved brothers. I'm in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who were poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? 
Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. James here is going to make arguments for why, as a Christian, you should never treat anybody differently because of their status, their wealth. The first is this. James says, number one, the poor are rich in Christ. It's a historical reality that those who are poor are more likely to believe in Jesus as well. Look, please, in verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who were poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? Now, let me explain. Do you think God loves the poor more than He loves the rich? Could that possibly be true? Do all poor people immediately believe in Christ? What James is doing here is showing one of the humbling, leveling realities of the grace of Jesus. When you approach Jesus, the Lord of glory, it doesn't matter how much money you have. He literally doesn't care. He cannot be impressed because He owns everything. For the many of you in this congregation who are comfortable and well-off in, in terms of worldly wealth, praise the Lord. Never forget, God isn't impressed. And James says, nobody else should be either. You should receive that as God's loving, merciful provision for you and use all of your wealth, including your talent and your precious time. You should use all of that for worship and service to, to the Lord who gave it to you in the first place. If, on the other hand, you are poor, and we are a very diverse congregation in every single way, including economic status. Jesus loves you no less. In fact, James says it is the poor who God has chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. In other words, the poor are as rich in Christ as anyone else. Someone who is destitute, hungry, and hopeless, and homeless with their faith in Christ is a beloved child of God. And I will tell you, historically, particularly from the missionary lens, my experience has been in every country of the world I've ever visited, and especially in Mexico where I lived for so long, I discovered something. The poor are not only as rich in Christ as everybody else, they are more likely to love Jesus than the wealthy are. And you say, well, you, now you're discriminating against the rich. No, I'm just quoting Jesus. Look at this. Jesus said to His disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you get that? Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And in Bible college, there was this little biblical legend circulating that the eye of the needle was this one gate in the city wall in Jerusalem, and they made the camel get down on his knees and go through there. If you look deeply into that text, do you know what Jesus meant? That it's easier for an actual camel to go through the eye of an actual needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Let's keep listening to Jesus. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Now, mark their reaction. 
Jesus said it's really hard for a rich man to be saved, to enter the kingdom. How did the disciples take it? Read with me. How'd they take it? It blew them away. Now, why would that be? Because their implicit understanding of the world, which hasn't changed much in our day, is if you're doing well in the world, you must be on God's side. That's why Job's friends all gathered around him and asked him basically one question, what'd you do? Because you had all this money and you had all these kids and everybody loved you and we all thought you were awesome, but now you're poor and your family's dead and you're sitting here on a pile of trash, whatever did you do to make God treat you this way? Now, why is it? I grew up in a country marked by poverty, but because of laws and regulations regarding my education, I actually grew up in private schools where a significant portion of the population, not our family, but a significant portion of the student population was very, very wealthy. I went to school with a few kids who were bodyguard rich. And what that means is you're so rich and you're such a kidnapperist that you have armed security with you everywhere all the time. That's rich. Not too many people like that in the world. Why is Jesus singling out the rich and warning the rich to his disciples' astonishment that it's very hard for the wealthy to be saved? Because as long as money can solve people's problems, they feel no need of God. My grandmother used to say, if money can solve your problems, your problems aren't that big. And she's right. There are some problems that no amount of money can solve. And if ever, that is when a self-assured, successful one percenter will turn to God. When her great wealth, his great wealth, is no help in this specific situation. The pride that is in every human heart, poor and rich, which has been strengthened by success and by wealth, then breaks and turns to God because He alone can solve some problems. And look at Jesus' comfort to the disciples. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. There's one of your Instagram verses, by the way, that gets passed around the internet. Did you ever notice the context? It takes a miracle for a rich person to be saved. Why are so few people in America walking and turning to God? Are we all wealthy? No, but in historical perspective, we're all doing pretty well. Because wealthy in the ancient world, and even today, wealthy by a global standard means you don't have to worry about tomorrow's meals. By that standard, almost all of us, not every person in this congregation, but almost every person in this congregation is wealthy and secure and safe in a way that James himself could not even have imagined in his own time. So we need to hear that. And as a typical American family that has four adults and four cars, think about that just for a second, you realize what kind of privilege that represents? Now, some of them are pretty old, and, you know, my boys and I have never driven the kind of car that would make anybody love us for our car. <laughs> it's a great thing. 
I knew Sharice's heart was true because I was driving the, I was driving up mechanical pile uh, that was just barely getting down the road and she still got in the car to go on the first date and I thought she must be interested in me because it's not this 74 Chrysler. It's not the 74 Chrysler. There must be something real here. But I'm speaking to you in a global, historical, and biblical perspective as a rich man telling you that within my heart and in yours, if you share my standing, there is, and for the poor as well, because they may think this wealthy person who just came in may be of benefit to them, there is something woven deeply into the fabric of a sinful heart that is not yet fully discipled to Jesus to treat people with favoritism. And James says, don't you do it. His big idea is you don't play favorites with people just because they have money. And he tells them why. Look in verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So James says, here's one reason not to play favorites. First of all, the poor are rich in Christ, and historically, biblically, according to Jesus, the poor are more likely to love Jesus in the first place. Here's the second reason. The rich treat you poorly. Now, obviously, these are not fellow rich believers. Those existed. If you dial back a few verses, James is warning rich Christians and poor Christians. James here clearly has in mind the rich that are participating in the persecution that's got them in all this trouble in the first place. And James says, here's how the rich are treating you. May not be true of us, but here's James' historical setting paying attention to the text, James tells them, here's what the rich are doing to you. They oppress you, they drag you into court, and they blaspheme the name of Jesus. Who's the one who saved you? That's how the rich treat you. They oppress you, they drag you into court, and they blaspheme the name of your Savior. Now, just to take that out of the first century into our world, try to feel the importance and the naturalness of how easy it is to play favorites, let me just ask you. If you run through a stop sign and hit another car, would you rather hit a poor person or a rich person's car? (laughs) Why is that? You hit the poor person, you might think to yourself, what's he going to do? You hit a Bentley? So, man, he may be a lawyer, and if he's not, he has lawyers. Let me put it into a situation that we've all lived through. Do you enjoy disputes with insurance companies? Why? Because they have more money than you do. If you really want to dispute, if you think that you've been treated poorly... And you can't reason with the customer service person who answers the phone after 55 minutes of of polka music. (laughs) I've been there, sorry. You think to yourself, I need a lawyer. And then you think to yourself, the next part, I can't afford a lawyer. And how much is this all going to cost? 
And by the time I pay the lawyer, am I actually going to be any further ahead on this claim? Why am I going into that? What makes that power difference is one single thing, money. And James says one of the hallmarks of being a Christian is you treat people alike. You love them regardless. You don't measure them by their clothing, by their car, by their status, by their success, by their Instagram followers. You don't look at that. You do something quite different, James says. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Here's the third and the most difficult part of James' little message. The law, the kingdom of God, that the rich enter with such difficulty, though anyone who loves Jesus can and will be saved. And the cajillionaire who trusts Jesus will be just as loved and just as cherished by the God who saved him because God can't be impressed by his wealth. What could you ever give to God to impress him? What kind of check could you write? What kind of inheritance could you leave that would make the God of heaven say, oh, wow, they're really sharp. Oh, whatever I have and whatever you have, God gave it to you. You say, well, I worked awfully hard for it. Yes, that may be true, but you did it with the health and the intelligence that God provided, which could be taken from you just like that. There's a humbling and a leveling at the cross of Christ. The law of the kingdom of God is love. Jesus summarizes the law of the Old Testament in all of its holiness and all of its severity by referring to the second half of the great commandment. The first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is, love your neighbor as? Do you want to be treated differently because you don't have enough money to be in that circle? Does anybody want that? Because one other thing I learned, I was never in that circle. Our family obviously didn't have enough money and we didn't have the right last name. But one thing I learned about the rich is there are levels even within wealth. And the mega rich scorn the rich. And the rich scorn the middle class. And the middle class scorned the poor, and according to a missionary in Mexico, he worked among people who lived in trash heaps, and one person stole electricity and ran a line down to his tar paper shack and stopped talking to his neighbors because they didn't have electricity. <laughs> now, you're laughing because that's absurd, but that's the nature of the human heart. That's why James is saying, those of you in the kingdom, here's the law. The royal law, the law from the king of glory is this, love others the way you love yourself. Treat others the way you want to be treated. No favoritism whatsoever. But that's not all he said, and this is the conclusion of the sermon with the most difficult passages, the most difficult verses in the passage. Look in verse 9. But if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So just sit with that for a second. Because we've all acknowledged we're wired for favoritism, right? 
Every single one of us. And James says, if you do that, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. God's law. His holy law, which reflects His perfect character. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. In other words, the, there is no curve with God's holiness and with God's character. There is only perfection. It's, if I could give a, a simple analogy, I once made a 950-mile drive and sped pretty hard for about five miles of it. On one of those five miles, there was a state trooper. I could not tell him about the previous 400 miles where I was flawless. Now that I think about it, I've got a lot of tickets, stories. <laughs> One fine representative of the law in Los Angeles started writing me a ticket when I stepped out of my car at the curb at LAX. I had the confidence to do that because 12 other people were doing it and I was tired of sitting there. And he was looking right at me the whole time I sat there, and the, time, and the moment I got out of my car, he walked up and started writing me a ticket. I said, what's happening? He said, I'm writing you a ticket because you're out of your car. And I said, sir, you could have, you could have just said, get back in your car. I would have. He kept writing. <laughs> I said, sir, I think I know how this is going to go, but everybody's doing this. <laughs> he said, True. Right now, I'm talking to you. That's the law. You may not like it, but that's the law. And this isn't a trivial matter. This is the Lord of glory. This is God himself telling you how to live, telling you that if you fail the law in a point, you're a transgressor. You're accountable for the law as a lawbreaker. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. That's the humbling part of the law that we're told to live under. We all break it. Only sinners came to Crosspoint this morning. That's it. That's all who came that's all who can ever come. That's all who can ever preach from this pulpit. Lawbreakers, transgressors. You don't get to pick in God's court and argue about the laws that you did keep. For instance, I can't say to the state trooper, I had my seatbelt on. <laughs> Fabulous. I won't write you a ticket for not having your seatbelt on. We're discussing 75 and a 65. That's all we're talking about right now. That's the way the law works. And everybody wants justice until it's about to be applied to them. What do you want when justice is headed your way? Mercy. That's the way it works. So James really is very practical, he's very narrow, and he's very specific about an old sinful habit of the human heart that we all tend to play favorites. 
And what James is going to argue for is simply this. He wants you, a Christian, to give others the mercy you receive from God. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The law of liberty is a really interesting phrase in James and in really in the entire Bible. I think what he means is this, the holy law of God which you have broken, which you cannot perfectly keep, is liberty for you because it has been satisfied by Christ in the gospel. And you are going to be judged by the law, and people who have not taken refuge in Jesus, who have not turned from their sin and trusted Jesus, will be every one of them judged as lawbreakers. Those who have received the mercy of Christ will be, as James said earlier, of some of these poor. They are going to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And the gospel is the only salvation and the only hope for us to be saved and for us to live without partiality, without playing favorites. Look what it says in verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I think this is what James is trying to tell us. The law of the kingdom is love. So if you're the kind of person who plays favorites, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, if you don't show mercy... James would tell you, perhaps you're not in the kingdom at all. It is a, literally a crying shame that people who have been forgiven all of their sins by Christ are known and perceived as judgmental. And there's two sides to that. In one sense, we are never judges, but we are always to be discerning. We can't go on ignoring God and living any way we please because we don't belong to ourselves. We haven't been saved by ourselves. We belong. We are in the family of God because of Jesus, the King of glory. If Jesus said not to, we don't dare. If Jesus said we must, we must grit our teeth, pray for mercy, pray for strength, and obey him, whatever the culture says. He's in charge. He's the king. He's the boss. He's the one who kept God's law perfectly in our place so that we could be received into God's kingdom and into God's family. And if we're going to be judged and criticized, it should be because we're being faithful to Scripture and obedient to Jesus. On that, we can't give an inch. But in so many other respects, Christians, whether they mean to or not, give off a vibe as those who have figured it all out and in a special favored class, all of their own because they simply, I don't know, we're smarter than everybody else. And the world feels us looking down at them as these poor, benighted souls. May I remind you, we were poor, benighted souls. If we have any knowledge of God, any knowledge of love and mercy and forgiveness and grace, it is only because mercy triumphs over judgment. 
That's what Jesus did for you at the cross. If you're one of those who is trying to figure it out and trying to decide about Jesus, please understand James' warning here, judgment is coming for everyone. And the only way to escape judgment is not to keep the law perfectly. That opportunity has passed. You already blew it along with me. There's not one person who can stand in the presence of a holy God and say, you must accept me for we are equal. I think and act and do as you. Nobody's ever said that. The religious game is people compare themselves with one another and feel a little bit better about themselves. I've made enough visits in prison to tell you that even in the worst, darkest prisons in Mexico, a moral code remains where some prisoners disdain others because I did all this, but I didn't do that. That favoritism, that superiority, that partiality is woven into the human heart. Who alone can save human beings, men and women, from that? Jesus alone, because mercy triumphs over judgment. But James is telling you, Christian, now that you've been given this law, and for you it is liberty, this is your standard, this is what you yourself will be measured by in the presence of God, so please, you were received by God's love and mercy, so go show them to others. No favorites. So speaking as a member of Crosspoint, if you've ever felt that you were treated less because you have less, you shouldn't have been. It was sin. You were owed an apology, and we hope to have your forgiveness. I don't consciously know that that is part of the fabric and the culture of our church. I see on the contrary. I see people with means using them to serve those who have less. I see great love and generosity. I see sacrifice and I see friendships across socioeconomic and ethnic and educational and achievement lines that do not exist hardly anywhere else. Only Jesus does these things. We must not play favorites. Poor or rich, we must steward the saving gospel of Christ and give to others, including those who can do nothing for us, who may actually be opposed to us, we must give them the same mercy and the same message that saved us. And whatever you have, and the 21st century disease is to have plenty and feel like you're under the gun. Never in the history of the world has any culture had as much as we do and felt so under pressure because we have so little. It's an irony. To disciple all of that to Jesus and say, whatever this is, my relationship with Jesus is by grace. The money, the talent, the intelligence, the opportunities, the employment, my very life and time that I have, it's all from Him. I will use it to show through my giving, my going, my loving, my forgiving, and my befriending, I will show to others the same mercy that Jesus gave me. I will not play favorites. And if you don't know Jesus, this is my personal invitation to you to trust Him. Let's pray. Could I ask you, friend, if you know Christ as Savior? 
If you don't, could I invite you to turn from whatever you've been trusting? Turn away from the procrastination and call out to Jesus and ask Him to save you right now. Please. And especially in this first service with so many of you having walked with the Lord for a long time. Take James' message to heart. Don't play favorites. Use your giving, use your serving to favor and to bless those who have less. Let's make this a beacon not of judgment, but of gospel. Jesus, thank you for the time we've shared together. Your word is so practical and so specific. It can be very incisive if we see ourselves in it. Give us the grace to do so. Help us never treat poorly, treat with dishonor any human being in the household of God or outside of it. Help us see us all as either recipients of your grace or those who are in need of your grace. I ask this in Jesus' name.